Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corker Foundation for Mental Health. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We are sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of other people who do as well. We've learned that hearing others speak openly and without shame about their experiences makes it easier to believe depression is a common and treatable illness, not a personal failing. You are far from alone. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. You have no doubt heard all the reports on how the pandemic has negatively affected mental health for many of us. On the Mayo Clinic website, for example, it says, During the COVID-19 pandemic, you may experience stress, anxiety, fear, sadness, and loneliness. And mental health disorders, including anxiety and depression, can worsen. Surveys show a major increase in the number of U.S. adults who report symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression during the pandemic, compared with surveys before the pandemic. No surprise there. Today's guest, John, had that experience while quarantining sick with COVID. His depression was the worst it's ever been. But it was also during the pandemic that he had a major breakthrough with his mental health, one that he reached out to us to share. John contacted us via Facebook, where we have a supportive community of 10,000 that we invite you to join. He wrote, I want you to know your podcast really helped me. I've always felt so alone in my depression. To hear honest, loving talk has been very empowering for me. Now it's John's turn to speak honestly and lovingly, to let us all know that someone else who's been in the deep, dark, despairing pit got out and is living a life worth living. It's not a perfect or depression-free life, but it's a life that once again includes laughter, creativity, meaning, and hope. Here is John giving his voice to depression. The very first time you reached out, you said for many years you fought the idea that you suffered from depression, didn't want anyone to think less of you. Then you came to the realization that you'd battled it for many years and that that actually gave you the strength to get help, to talk about it with others, to begin to make sense of your feelings. Yes. Sounds like a good place to start. That's a great synopsis. That really is. So, yeah. So I think, I don't know if it's true of people in general, because I can't really comment on the female perspective, but I do know for men that saying that you have depression suggests weakness. It suggests um, that you're less than a man for doing it. I grew up in an environment, you know, I was really into sports and felt very insecure about that. Uh, So I never wanted to put a name to my feelings, a name called depression to my feelings. I wonder, has anyone ever said to you, oh, people with depression are weak losers. They just don't handle life as well as us manly men do. How much of it's self-stigma and how much of it is actually out there? Is it 
Oh, I think a lot of it is just inside our heads. I think it's part of the disease is telling us that you're weak. You're, it's part of that whole negative self-talk, that mm-hmm. whole strain of thought, thinking not only am I worthless, am I bad, I can't get anything done, I never achieve what I want to achieve, you know, on and on and on and on. And I'm a guy and I shouldn't be doing this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have weaknesses like this. I should be, I should tough it out. I should do that. I don't know whether that's just a result of growing up in the era that I grew up in and maybe men are more self-aware now and maybe they're more willing to share those kinds of things. Um, but I think that stigma is just something that we feel like it's there and we don't, uh, we just tend not to broach those sorts of things. Um, if you had diabetes, sort of like, would you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be fine. Sure. I mean, now I understand my depression is a disease. But if you see it as a character failing or you see it as a short personal shortcoming or as mm-hmm. I'm a I'm really a broken person and nobody's going to understand my brokenness, then it takes on a life of its own. And since it did, John says he spent a lot of energy concealing what he was experiencing and using what he describes as dysfunctional and inappropriate ways to make himself feel better, or at least not to experience the bad as much anyway. You know, I grew up as a football player, and it was always like, you know, get shake it off, get up. You know, if you can't get up, it's because you're weak. If you can't get, you know, if you're, you got to fight through the injury, you got to fight through all this stuff. It was always that sort of a thing. And when an in, injury is psychological and emotional in nature and it um it's buried in that pit of snakes that uh, the thinking inside my head that's constantly eroding my self-confidence and my self-esteem and making me feel icky all the time yeah then i don't and you don't want to share it with anybody that icky pit of snakes thinking that erodes confidence and self-esteem is not new to John. And I had always struggled with self-esteem issues since I was a very little kid, very, real small boy. I had struggled with self-esteem issues and I never put my self-esteem issues together with my with how I was feeling. As strange as that sounds, I just assumed my self-esteem was just something I dealt with and it didn't have any effect on my emotional life. Um, I didn't see how self, how the, the lack of self-esteem that I had as a child growing up and becoming a man, how that was an expression of, of my depression and how they were so intertwined. Like many with depression, John experienced adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. According to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, ACEs are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood including experiencing or witnessing violence, abuse, or neglect, as well as aspects of the child's environment that can undermine their sense of safety, stability, and bonding, such as growing up in a household with substance use or mental health problems. ACEs are linked to chronic health problems, mental illness, and substance use problems in adulthood. We will link to an ACEs test with this episode. You know, I grew up in an alcoholic family. My father was very verbally abusive, and he would say awful things to me, and I took that to heart. Dragging that around for 
you know, as, as I'm going to be 62 in September, dragging that around for many, many years, I never associated that with depression. But then I began to see how it affected the way that I felt about myself, and it really became difficult to manage as I got older. As I got older, it became more difficult for me to be able to push through that thinking, that that really um, dark thinking, that negative voice inside my head constantly saying, you're never going to get it done, you're never going to get it right. If I did something good, it was by mistake. Um, If something bad happened, it was a result, direct result of my character defects. Sound familiar? What's bad will only get worse. And what's good is no longer accessible. It can help to realize that depression says the same vile things to all of us, which hopefully makes it easier to see those incessant thoughts as symptoms of an illness versus damning truths. When John contemplates the roots of his negative self-talk, low self-esteem, and maybe even his depression, one story immediately comes to mind. So then I, I, I look back on those early days of my life, and, and, I, and I remember feeling broken as a child, feeling very broken. And I remember that my grades were so bad in grade school that my parents came home. I still remember this. My parents came home from a parent-teacher conference. They opened up my bedroom door, and there I was sitting in my bedroom, and they said, what's wrong with you? And I th- thought, damn if I know. Oh. Damn if I know. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. Something's clearly wrong with me, and I don't know. So <laughs> you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. But that you know, question was not asked in a, gosh, we've got to get to the bottom of this loving, caring way. It was like, dude, oh, what's that wrong? Have, that, would have taken, that would have taken some effort. That would have taken, you know, that, some self-awareness on the part of my parents. That would have taken, my parents, my dad was struggling with very bad alcoholism, and my mother was codependent, and that would have required them to be able to, I mean, they couldn't deal with themselves much okay. less me. You know, so, um, yeah, I, I remember, and that was, I was probably what, third, fourth grade at that time. And I had, yeah, something's profoundly wrong with me and your guess is as good as mine. And nobody's guessing. Right. Nobody's bothering to. Minutes later in our conversation, that same story percolates to the top again. The way a memory can even when it's hardly the worst experience in our history. When I finally, you know, here I am decades and decades later, when I finally realized what I had been struggling with, then I thought back, I, that, that memory came back to me instantaneously of me being in my bedroom, my parents coming and opening the door and saying, what's wrong with you? And I thought, I think it's depression, guys. You know, I think I, I think I suffer from depression. I think I have self-esteem issues and I think, I think I need some help, you know? No little kid can say that. (laughs) No, they can't. They can't. Many adults can't say that. Right. So, right. So learning how to say it and learning how to be okay with it is, you know, um, I can tell you that I, I, that. As soon as I was able to do that, as soon as I was able to take ownership of it and 
really recognize that that was so that was such a an integral part of my experience as a person that um, I really felt like the door opened. I really felt like what's that Leonard Cohen song? Um, everything is broken. That's where the light gets in. Yeah, that sort of thing. When I recognized, when I really understood my brokenness, when I really understood. Um, that I was struggling with this, um, that's really when I felt hope again. That understanding, acceptance, and the return of hope were hard fought for John. There's a great meme making the rounds on the Internet that shows what people think recovery looks like, which is a straight line from illness to wellness. And in the adjacent frame, a graphic depiction of what recovery, from anything, really looks like which is a tangled mess of ups and downs, backs and forths. But the reality is I needed every one of those downturns. When I look at it now, when I think about my life, I needed everything that happened to me. I mean, I'm not grateful for my depression, but I I heard some people, I heard a, a podcast that you guys had on, and it was about a guy who was talking about the eight things he was grateful for his depression for. And I was thinking, God, what would anybody be grateful for their depression for? But then I thought to myself, it has increased my capacity to be compassionate to be other people. It's increased my ability to understand everybody because I feel as though they're no different than I am, most people. We all struggle. We all have identity crises. We all are trying to find meaning in our lives. We all go through dark places. Um, but it, but the problem for me is I could be compassionate to, with everybody else but myself. I was loving and compassionate with other people and forgiving when things would happen, but I couldn't extend that same love and forgiveness to myself. And that's how I would describe my depression, my inability to accept love, my inability to be able to process it, my ability to be able to think good thoughts about myself, my ability to be able to address uh, self-esteem issues in healthy ways and be able to recognize when my depression is talking to me. John says when his depression would talk especially cruelly and loudly, he would on occasion seek professional help. But he always viewed it as related to a specific situation versus an underlying mood disorder or mental illness. Like I went through a divorce and uh, ended up going to see my doctor when I was starting to have panic attacks. And he put me on an SSRI that was, you know, a result of a, a marriage going south and all the things that go with it. SSRIs, in case you're not familiar with antidepressants, are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a class of meds commonly prescribed to treat depression. They include Prozac, Lexapro, Celexa, Paxil, and others. And then um, I struggled, uh, you know, during the 2008 when everything went belly up. That affected me financially, and I went to a doctor looking for help and, again, thought it was just situational, that it was just a, uh, it was just something that would pass. But... This year, I think COVID in particular really had me in a place you can run, but you can't hide. 
place where I had gone through a difficult relationship and then COVID and I got sick right away. And that brought up a lot of feelings that I just assumed were, again, situational. But it took me to a much darker place this time. So dark that John recognized his very life was on the line. So this time, in addition to calling his doctor and getting back on the meds that had helped him in the past, he also accessed other resources and got into counseling. It was an all-hands-on-deck situation. You said that during COVID, you reached out to EAP, the Employee Assistance Program. And I know that so many people fear doing that because they Mm -hmm. think they're going to lose their job. They'll never be promoted, all those things. If you're willing to share about that experience, um, I think it could be helpful. I know EAP is a confidential thing. I knew that would be handled in complete confidence that my employer would never know anything about it. So I didn't hesitate when I was at my very bottom. I didn't hesitate to call them. And they were able to facilitate some sort of uh, care or response that helped? Well, they got the ball rolling. You know, it wasn't, um, it was a great first step for me. It wasn't something that was the end all be all. They hooked me up with the therapist. They facilitated that and that was great. Um, I ended up switching therapists a little while later, somebody I was a little bit more comfortable with. But um, I think all in all, it was just part of me finally coming to grips with my feelings and and being willing to take willing willing to do anything at that point to get help. Willing to do anything to get help. Mm-hmm. That's what it mm-hmm. takes, that right? Is. It's not a clear trajectory at all, but that's what it takes. It is and we can't just maybe literally lay there you know, and think it will pass because anybody who's been there knows it doesn't always. And, um, you know, if somebody throws a lifeline or if there's one there, you got to grab onto it. It's like drowning. Mm -hmm. That's where we're going to stop John's story for this episode. But next week, we'll continue our conversation and we'll focus on what happened during COVID that allowed the light and hope to make their way through the cracks that John felt in himself and in his life. And I don't want to make it sound like a nice little pretty neat box, Terry, that COVID is like this past tense thing. At least for me, it's not. I don't think it is. And I don't think the challenges that it imposes on all of us are over either. So I just have to say that because it's very much happening. It's very much happening. We also mentioned that we're going to link to the ACES test. And for those of you who don't know, that was uh, conducted by the Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It demonstrates the relationship between adverse childhood experiences and adult health and social outcomes. And their belief is that by understanding ourselves as adults often means we have to revisit our childhood. And that test can help you do that. Every time I hear that, um, understanding ourselves as adults by returning and revisiting our childhood, I just want to gulp. I agree. I agree. So having pretty much shared the childhood with you, <laughs> I know what I know of what you speak. Yes. So thank you, John. Really grateful that you reached out. Um, really looking forward to next week and hearing how you just sort of turn the tables and return the favor on the people who helped you, and now you're willing to help all of us. And I got to say, John, what a rapid, um, oh gosh, what's the word? What a rapid uh, journey, trajectory. 
No, I already used that word today. Processing. <laughs> um, <laughs> the way that you have gone from being in something to labeling it, processing it, exploring it, talking about it internally to yourself and now to all of us yes. in such a short, succinct um time frame is kind of amazing. And again, don't get me wrong, I get that it's not over and in a nice little neat box, but pretty rapid processing, John. Impressive. Thank you. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.